everyone. Welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest. December 14th, 2023, the Is Harvard Anti-Semitic Edition. I'm David Plotz of CityCast in Washington, D.C. John Dickerson of CBS Primetime is at home in New York City, where we all were last week taping, which was so nice. So Hello, fun. John. Hello, David. Oh, th- th- there's a voice memory. You know what's nice, though, about this? The only thing that's good about this is that we don't have to, like, hit the mute button on and off the way we had to when we were at the uh, dining room table. That is true. We can cross-talk. Emily Bazelon was cross-talking New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School's Emily Bazelon from New Haven. No, not even from New Haven. Visiting a friend elsewhere. Hello, Emily. Hey, David. Hey, John. Hi. This week on the GabFest, we will try to explain the uproar, the uproar about whether elite universities are soft on anti-Semitism. Then the special counsel tries to get the Supreme Court to prevent Trump from delaying his January 6th trial. And then the tragic, awful Texas abortion case uh, involving Kate Cox. Plus, of course, we will have cocktail chatter. Okay, this topic that we're about to do, we're going to start with, I want to start by acknowledging that it's a kind of like a third order version of this topic, because there you have the war between Hamas and Israel, which is tragic and awful and extremely worrisome. And this that is like a, a global import. And then there's a spillover of that war in the United States and the impact it's had on domestic politics, which is still a smaller and more parochial issue than the war itself. And then smaller still is the fight that we're going to talk about, which is the fight that's erupted over how elite universities, notably Harvard and Penn and MIT in this case, should respond to the political turmoil and hostility that has gripped their campuses in the wake of October 7th and the the Israeli war in Gaza. We're going to focus on that smaller question, maybe because it is easier to get a handle on. We maybe know more about it. And it's by being smaller, maybe it's more clarifying. In case you've been under a rock, here's the quick summary. In the wake of pro-Palestinian protests and activism at some elite universities, a House committee last week summoned three university presidents or asked three university presidents to testify about anti-Semitism. When questioned, and we could talk about the ambiguity of that questioning, by Republican Elise Stefanik, all three presidents, MIT President Sally Kornbluth, Penn President Elizabeth McGill, Harvard President Claudine Gay, would not definitively state that calling for genocide of Jews was against the University of Code of Conduct. Huge uproar ensued. Major Jewish figures, including donors and other people associated with universities, uh, protested. McGill resigned. The MIT and Harvard presidents have kept their jobs, but not without huge amount of controversy. So, Emily, that's a lot of the backstory. Was what the university presidents of MIT, Harvard, and Penn said to Elise Stefanik uh, wrong legally or morally based on what you know of university policies and the law? So, universities balance protection for free speech with protecting students from hostile environments, right? So, there's the First Amendment. It doesn't All of the First Amendment in its full sweep doesn't have to be the free speech rules for universities, but there's the free speech principles. And then there's Title VI and Title IX, which are these statutes that say that in an educational environment, 
you can't have um, the kind of hostility of harassment of targeting that um, violates those statutes. So there's these kind of countervailing pressures on each side. And um, I think what the university presidents were trying to say in this moment is that the way they or schools policies balance these competing policies and values is that if you're targeting an individual, if you're saying like, kill John, kill David, or kill you because you're Jewish, then that clearly rises to the level of like harassment of targeting. But if you're making a general call, it does not. So that I think is like a fine legal way of thinking about it. It just was an utter moral failure in the moment because I think for two reasons. So first of all, if someone really was yelling, kill all the Jews, let's have a genocide, that would be horrifying. And I think other people in the moment would respond, I think, um, in a way that would deeply protest, right? The same way you would imagine would happen for a call to kill all of any group. It's, it matters that, in fact, nobody on campus is actually yelling, kill the Jews. Like, that's not a thing. In, you know, and so, it, <laughs> but because universities, I think, have taken um, a more permissive approach towards speech that makes a lot of Jewish students and Jews feel really uncomfortable. And some of the chanting of Intifada and from the river to the sea is included in that, right? Because people mean a lot of different things when they say those phrases. Sometimes they mean a kind of call for Palestinian rights and self-determination. Sometimes they might mean like all the 7 million Jews who live in that space, that is the state of Israel, um, leaving or it's not clear, like being expelled, ethnically cleansed. We don't really know. And so because of all these swirling interpretations and this issue, I think, of how schools have allowed speech that does make Jewish students uncomfortable after years of shutting down speech that made other small groups of students uncomfortable, there's a sense of a double standard. And, and so the sort of combination of Stefanik's like kind of genius moment of really sharpening and turning the actual message of the protest into this like clarion call, kill all the members of a group. Morally speaking, it seemed like obvious, like, no, that's a violation of our rules. We would, we would not accept that. We would not tolerate that. But she led them there through this path of this other kind of speech. There are these double standard questions in the background. Like it was just a mess. Um, untangling the mess because I'm slow is what's I think important here. Cause there is a theatrical, in the moment, what was required response? Because the question is whether this, what was clearly a planned theatrical moment to embarrass them on the uh, in a situation in which the questioner has the upper hand, in which the um, entire moment is encased in advantage to put them at a disadvantage and put them on their weakest foot. So in other words, it's not to elicit something particularly, it's to catch them. That, that you give an answer in that instance um, which is probably emotional, moral, and answers the situation as it's presented before you. And then there's the question is, did that situation in its theatricality actually excavate something that's super important, which it probably did in some way, because this double standard does exist. The idea that, that speech is violence in other contexts is protected and promoted on campuses all the time. And so there is a double standard here that should be... Um, uh, examined, but was this theatrical way of doing it the, the right way to come about that? But then, so the, there's the, the theatricality, and then there's the second thing, which is what what and how do universities 
manage this and manage instances in which, you know, there's a difference between different kinds of speech and relationship to action um, and the necessities of an institution that is supposed to have a free flow of ideas to create learning. I thought it was a brilliant moment. I mean, I have no, I have no uh, brief with at least Stefanik, who seems like a dreadful person, a lot of things, but I did think it was a, as a, an exposing of the problems with how universities are dealing with speech. I thought it was an incredible moment. It will probably have more impact than anything that's happened than any, any cancellation of anyone so far, because I think universities are either, they're going to have to pick a, they're going to have to pick a path. They're going to have to come out with like, we're going to have strict speech codes and, and promote safety for everybody and ban, you know, ban groups that are doing things that saying things that are even a little bit beyond on all sides, or they're going to reset. And they're going to reset along University of Chicago lines, uh, along the lines that that Steven Pinker uh, lays out um, in the in one of David French's articles. Is the sort of more these principles, which is we're going to ha- allow a lot more speech, and yes, there are certain forms of harassment that won't be permitted, but there will be no, none of this sort of none of the safety language will be front and center. Which way do you think they're going to go, Emily? You are on campuses. You're on a elite you know, Ivy League campus, which somehow managed to avoid getting dragged into this for the first time ever. Oh, don't, don't let, they're not, it's not, we're not over yet. You ever see that, that figure that someone compiled about how often Yale is referred to in the New York Times versus all other for all other universities, all other, all of community colleges are referred to like 1% of as yeah, much as Yale is referred to. Yeah, we're at for anyway. Ivy League schools right now, I would say. Um, I am not sure what they're going to do. I mean, I think that they've created an expectation of safety, which like the word safety has come to mean basically like Ugh, emotional can't comfort. Stand that word. <laughs> and can't you know, there's it. a really good argument that this is not what education, especially university education, is for, that being uncomfortable is part of what you're there for. And so to me it seems kind of unimaginable that we would have a world in which college students are not permitted to chant intifada or um from the river to the sea because the whole question is like, why are you chanting that? Do you understand what those words mean? What do you mean by that? Here is why, you know, is someone who disagrees with those chants coming along and saying like, here's what that means to me. Um, here's how I feel. There's a really good um, clip on Twitter of a Jewish student, I think at social work school, trying to push back in exactly that way with a kind of heartfelt emotional appeal based on um, how she feels like those words affect her and her own family. That's how people learn things and feel things. That's well, how you, I, yeah. Yeah. I mean, actually just sorry to interrupt you. No, she's not talking about those words. She's talking about the fact that people are referring to Jews as Zionist dogs. That was okay. what she, that, I mean, yes. so it was, it was, it was even more particular. Just Yes. Very particular. Good point. I'm glad you corrected me. Um, the point is just that this is a kind of basic idea about speech, that when people say things other people don't like, they say and express why they don't like them. And then maybe the people who are saying those things rethink and maybe they don't. But that's how, you know, we depend on all of those liberties in order to, if not advance debate, at least have debate. And especially on a college campus, you know, when you're talking about just like pure strategy question of how do you persuade people? How do you inform students? How do you make them um, into better citizens or at least citizens at all of their environment? It's by having these debates. It's not by shutting them down. And I, uh, you know, I've, I think the universities in their moments before this in which they were doing a lot of shutting down of debate were 
really going in this direction that was like not really one for education, sometimes for very good reasons of wanting to make sure that groups on campus who'd been marginalized in the past or had small presences would feel more comfortable. But in the end, like it's school, you're supposed to learn stuff. And the idea of being comfortable and still open is a super hard thing to learn like in life. And so if you can go to school and be made to feel uncomfortable and yet remain open to ideas and learn how to do that, it seems to me to be extra important in this moment now where so much of our understanding of issues is sorted tribally and that studies show that if you give somebody, if you say to somebody, would you like some information that will make you uncomfortable, but I'll give you $10 or give you some information that reinforces what you already believe and you get no money, they will pick the no money option. That the scratchiness of uncomfortable ideas is a cocooning part of our modern life that's super dangerous. And to your original point, David, the only way we can deal with, I've thought some of the best work, including yours, Emily, on this moment has been to teach, remind, and um, help us understand how words and um, history uh, are sorted in, in these debates. And the only way you can come to that understanding is if you have a framework for understanding, which is built on a kind of... Um, looser speech that we're talking about. So it really does go to the first order thing you mentioned, David, our ability to understand that goes through our ability to talk about it. I find your mention of that study. I think that's a deeply bullshit, bullshit study. I do not believe that study for one second, but, but you don't let's, so you don't believe the study or you don't believe that people don't like to hear stuff they don't understand. Oh, because your reaction, of course, your reaction is in fact affirming the study. You don't like (laughs) to hear it. So you're calling it bullshit. So you are. No, no, I'm just super skeptical. I'm just really skeptical. I, those kinds of studies, uh, seem almost, they're, they're all being, debunked left and right, all those sort of- But you would concede that your reaction is in fact affirming the underlying principle. Very clever, John. Yes. Um, I wanted to say in in the spirit of of debate, I wanted to offer a countervailing perspective. So Danielle Allen, who's a philosophy professor at Harvard, a classics professor, I think, um, who I have a lot of respect for, she wrote an essay in the Washington Post where she was arguing that universities should create cultures of mutual respect. And so she kind of imagines a scenario where people are protesting and they're chanting something that make a group uncomfortable and that those people show up and say like, hey, you're making me feel really uncomfortable. And then the university says to the protesters, look, you've created this reaction. Now you have to change how you're protesting. And Danielle also used this example where she said, you know, if students were chanting white power at a campus, I would not want to send my kids there. She's black. So anyway, I just thought that was an interesting way of framing a more restrictive speech environment. Uh, and I just wanted to give that its due. Do either of you, going back to the theatrical, and, and you can say this is a dumb question, move on, have a, a view of how the university president should have responded in that moment? Oh, yeah. My view is they, regardless of what the actual speech code is and whether, in fact, it violates the code of conduct, they should have said, yes, it violates our code of conduct and gotten... I mean, I'm sure there was a, a, a different trap waiting for them if they said that, but it wouldn't have been as bad. The trap there would have been like, well, why have you not, you know, why have you not uh, done X or Y? Uh, but but that but whatever the path they picked was clearly the wrong path, and everyone could see it, it happening. Was the wrong doors. <laughs> Although, yes. as, as, since as Emily said, first of all, I mean, 
Politicians who never answer hypotheticals, demanding an answer to a hypothetical is fun. Politicians who engage in in pretty extraordinary acts of hypocrisy, um, if they put the energy towards this act of hypocrisy, which I, which exists, um, towards other acts of hypocrisy in their realm, boy, what a world we would what, live in. What What do you guys think should be the speech codes at university? I I was really taken by the the description of the pinker ones that david french wrote about just there's no heckler's veto like you're not allowed to shut down speech you are not allowed to you know physically assault you know detain uh threaten people the language of you're not supposed to disrupt class don't disrupt class right but but but, you know don't get the language of safety should be removed from universities and there should be a broad latitude I don't even think it's to, it's not even to the Danielle Allen level where where people should reset, uh, reset reset what they say. They're allowed to say what they say. It's just you know as long as you're not doing these specific things to harass people, you can say them. Yeah, I mean, I think some of what's going on here has to do with the difference between norms and rules, right? So I think what. If you're offended by speech, what you want is for people to make that speech seem unacceptable, right? You want some kind of social cost for shouting white power or kill the Jews or whatever it is. And it's when you don't get that social signal or maybe as as a way of reinforcing that social signal, you turn to the school and you want this... Um, reinforcement you want the rules to kick in as a way of sanctioning and censoring the speech but they're actually like no that's the wrong move the move is toward trying to persuade people and you know to win the argument again like that and i think honestly that's what people really want but then they turn to the institution there's a lot of turning to the institution right now to be the arbiter and to it's like if you don't have the institution cracking down on someone then you know there's no like moral fiber to the campus but that's like wrong right and the institutions that's the other piece of it the institutions need to stay the hell out of these topics as institutions i mean that it's very hard and i think we're going to look back and say organizations really organizations that represent heterogeneous communities which is most of us most most organizations need to stay out of taking positions on issues of national politics international politics because it it just can't it doesn't work in the long run even as tempting as it is as comforting as it is to make a speech in 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 support of black lives matter it just it ends up being a fiasco almost all the time well, and I think the international contexts are even worse because people don't know what they're talking about, right? I mean, these polls of like, where is this river? Where is this sea? Like, what are you actually? It's just like, it's not our country. Like we, but most people in the United States don't really know what these, it's a it's a long conflict with a really complicated history, not our history. People don't understand it. So uh, one question is, do you think that one of the benefits of loosening going the Steven Pinker route is that you remove the spectacle seekers that essentially, you know, there will be a period where objectionable people come to campuses. Um, and, but because you've, because the, you, you've drained it of um, the institutional conflict, yeah. you might yeah. actually have less of this, kind of behavior or it would just be less of a spectacle and therefore it would be a kind of argument you think that yeah yeah no yeah if an asshole falls in a forest uh does he make a noise i mean it's like if they show up at the senior common room there's one person there (laughs) is does it matter 
Yeah, I, I think that's a good point. And then I wonder if there's also a bathwater issue, or at least just a defining our terms issue, which is that a lot of the um, strides that have been made in in equality and empathy and um, you know bettering the human experiment have come from understanding things like implicit bias, from being hyper aware of the way language does affect people. I'm not reversing anything we've said, but it it is you could imagine someone hearing the conversation saying. Well, what are you talking about? Because words do have powerful effects on people. And you see, for example, some of the things that have been said about um, the the presidents who are women of these colleges and why how they're not, you know, potentially, um, uh, you know, weren't potentially the best candidates. Bill, uh, uh, what's his name? Bill Ackman, made, Ackman. A, made a comment along those lines. So I guess what I would say is, it's possible still to have all of the advances and understanding that comes from, from knowing about how speech affects people um, in this new environment we all seem to be supporting. I just don't want anybody to misunderstand the fact that both can exist. I want to give a big thank you to our Slate Plus listeners. Because of listeners like you, we've been able to keep the GapFest going for so long. Uh, we had a real pleasure taping our live show last week we do a pre-show party and get to meet listeners and almost all of them are slate plus members because they get to early access to things like like uh the cocktail parties and just such a treat to meet you and you're such a lively smart great bunch and um thank you and you get in addition to getting to hang out at cocktail parties if that's something you want to do um you get bonus segments on every episodes and discounts to live shows no hitting the paywall on the slate site a lot more and this week's Slate Plus segment, really looking forward to um, an amazing story in the Times following on the story, maybe the most talked about segment we've ever done on this show with Marin Kogan, where we talked about we talked about Strodes and we talked about how dangerous it is, dangerous it is to be a pedestrian in the US. The Times followed on with a really interesting story about why it is that in the US in particular, uh, pedestrianism has become so much more dangerous in recent years and so much more dangerous at night. And we will talk about that story, but that's just for Slate Plus members. So sign up today at slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member and hear that conversation. This episode of the GabFest is sponsored by SAP. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos but it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia and identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks and automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations so you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. If you want to understand what is happening in the United States right now, you really need to understand what's happening with the courts, the law, and the Supreme Court. The battle between democracy and whatever this cage match is that we're witnessing, it's going to be won and lost at the ballot box, but it's also going to be won and lost in the courtrooms. I'm Dahlia Lithwick. I host Slate's legal podcast, Amicus, and we are doubling our output bringing you weekly episodes from here on in, because how else can we keep an eye on the many trials of Donald Trump, the conservative legal movement's assaults on our rights, the Supreme Court's latest slate of environmental gutting, gun safety, eviscerating cases on the docket. So follow Amicus wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes dropping every Saturday morning. 
Jack Smith, the special counsel handling all the Trumpy stuff, has made an expedited appeal to the Supreme Court asking them to quickly hear and then reject former President Trump's claim that he has absolute immunity from prosecution for actions he undertook as president and for actions that he was acquitted of on impeachment uh, as president. So, Emily, why is Smith asking the Supreme Court to consider this quickly? And, and would that be an unprecedented act for the court to do that? Let's see. Well, he needs to get this resolved. So this is a really um, extreme argument, this idea that the president would have absolute immunity, that everything Trump did related to January 6th, you know, is covered by the fact that he was in office at the time and you can't go after him for anything related to that. Like that's pretty out there. It's a pure legal question. It's something the Supreme Court should settle. And I think Smith is trying to get it out of the way so that um, you can move on to the more uh, plausible arguments, like a qualified immunity argument Trump could bring, or there's a whole separate challenge going on to the scope of these some of the ca- charges in the obstruction cases, particularly this idea of obstructing an official proceeding in Congress. Like, what did that actually mean? Have the prosecutors been using it in the way it, correctly based on the text? Uh, that's another thing that um, the Supreme Court just announced it will be weighing in on. I think the court does need to resolve these issues. The problem is that a very weak legal argument about absolute immunity is having the effect of pausing all the court proceedings involving Trump in the Jack Smith case. And so it's really on the Supreme Court to do this fast if there's going to be any hope of having a trial um, before the presidential election. Uh, in which then, of course, Trump could become president and just end his own prosecution, which is, um, you know, not, I think, (laughs) what would seem to be uh, a good outcome for American democracy. So anyway, those are the tensions here. And I, I understand why Smith brought this immediate appeal. And like I said, I think it's really um, eyes are on the Supreme Court to get this moving fast. And they did indicate that they, you know, were hoping to make this case move quickly. John. Trump's strategy clearly with these cases is to gum up the works, to use due process as his as his co-counsel. Um, and really, the the prosecutors are going after him kind of have no choice but to they, they can't be like, oh, he shouldn't get these protections. This should all be uh, thrown aside and we should get to put him on trial today. But on the other hand, there is a strong national interest in these trials taking place sooner than later. How do, how should we think about that? It's a great question. We should also add that uh, Trump lost an immunity uh, gambit in his first E. Jean Carroll defamation trial in which he was found to have defamed and sexually assaulted her. Trump's going to lose every battle and win the war. Like that's what's going to happen. He's going to lose every single one of these legal cases. And it doesn't, as long as he, if, you know, assuming he's reelected president, he's going to get to January, uh, 2024, 2025, and doesn't matter that he's lost every single legal claim. That Remember he's that the Fulton County case anyway, is a sorry, state sorry, prosecutor, John. not a federal prosecutor. Just well, adding that in there. Yeah, it doesn't right. matter. I, I don't like this overall blase approach to all of this. It's well, too, I mean, you're painting you, with too broad a you brush. No, I'm depressed. It's, no, de- well, it's well, not blase. But I'm, it's, no, but David, but David, you're articulating... Well, yeah. I, I hold on. I mean, so you are articulating, of course, the big question of our time, because it's not just no, it's no longer about 
Donald Trump. It's about whether the courts have any, whether the courts mean anything in law and in culture. So, you know, the reason presumably we believe in what the courts do is we believe in the system. And, and, you know, it's not, Donald Trump doesn't, doesn't have to have a second term. It's a reward, right? It's a gift that the voters will bestow on him. And if they decide that the findings of the courts um, mean nothing, um, then that's, that is a really scary place. I think, um, it has not though been the case that he has won the war, uh, after losing every battle. Um, uh, name that Dylan tune. Um, the, um, the, because, you know, the 2020 election was a loss on his part. Um, the people who believed in the lie that the courts repeatedly dunked underwater again and again and again lost in their elections in 22, 22, pretty much. Now, that doesn't mean that you didn't just see Kevin McCarthy, the former speaker, after saying Donald Trump was responsible for the attack on the Capitol, then turn around to endorse him. Politicians are still going to be without honor. Um, but uh, when it comes to the law, it has in fact held. Uh, all of those people who did the right thing within the administration, a lot of them were lawyers holding on to a code that mattered to them. So it, I don't think fatalism, if you're going to find hope in one part of our um, narrative, actually the law is a place to put, uh, is to put your hope. For sure, but they just can't, the law can't move fast. Law can't be as effective as Trump is at slowing it down. Like that's what I feel is yeah, happening. Well, that's, he's, he's more effective at slowing it down than it is at holding him to account. Yeah. So here's the question that that intrigues me. I, I, I like what you're teeing up. Is it that the law won't be fast enough or that the law can say what it wants, 91 indictments, all of this evidence that's come out, and Trump wins anyway? That That's that's the even more dire thing, but I think it's a possibility one has to has to wrestle with. David, I mean, the question is whether cases go forward or not is one question. But then the question, the other is, do they go forward enough that things come out in the cases that, um, you know, for example, we learned in a filing from Jack Smith, that there's going to be an expert who has gotten access to Trump's phone during the crucial period on January 6th. I mean, if there are texts um, from him that are the equivalent of the smoking gun tape in the Nixon case, and I'm not suggesting there are, although access to the phone when Trump was being frantic and given Trump's lack of phone hygiene, you know, suggest there might be something interesting in there. Would that have, would that have an effect on the voters? Um, I think that's possible and it wouldn't require the cases to have come to a complete end. Emily, do you, do you believe that the Supreme Court will take this up and handle it briskly? Yeah, I do. I think they already called for briefing. I think they'll get moving. And if they don't, then the judge's ruling will... Well, there's this... What Smith did was he asked for skipping the D.C. Circuit, the intermediate appellate level. So I guess what would happen if the court said no is that then the question would go to the D.C. Circuit instead. Uh, I think they'll just decide it. I actually think this whole thing of deciding the scope of the obstructing congressional proceedings is kind of a bigger deal. The Supreme Court said they're going to hear a challenge to a, a, a case involving that question this term. It's going to be one of the 
regular old January 6th defendants, right? Because prosecutors have used this charge of obstructing proceedings of Congress against like 300 people. But that case is going to presumably not get decided necessarily until the end of the term, at the end of June. And until it's clear what the scope of that charge is, that is like another trickiness here, right? I mean, that's an important charge against former President Trump. If his trial were to take place before the Supreme Court resolves that question, that's going to put the trial judge in a kind of bind. And basically what's happened there is that some judges have said you can't charge all these people with obstructing the proceeding of Congress. They weren't. That's not what they were doing. It's too it's too indirect to say that the January 6th attacks were obstructing the proceeding of Congress because that it's like you have to take too many steps between what they were doing and the proceeding of Congress, right? And also the scope of the statute, it was written where like maybe it was supposed to have you had to have documents or something that you were doing like in a isn't it part of Sarbanes-Oxley? Yeah. So it's like- a, It's the Sarbanes-Oxley. It's, it's a piece of legislation dealing with an entirely different thing, right? Exactly. And it's been sort of imported into this context for the first time. Like, it is a novel and interesting legal question. So if, if you imagine that the Supreme Court at the end of June might limit its scope, maybe it's not going to apply. What if you've already tried President, former President Trump for- this charge, which then kind of melts away, like that's a mess. Let's finish up on the fundamentals of Smith's appeal, which is that, that the question is whether Trump has this broad immunity for actions he took while president from prosecution after he's president. What's wrong with that argument that they have, the presidents have broad immunity for action, John? I mean, it, the thing that, that I see coming, I think presidents, of course, do not have full latitude to do whatever the hell they want as president and, you know, order citizens murdered. It's like, that's my duty as president. I'm going to order a citizen murdered just for fun. Um, on the other hand, you can also see that's being used as a pretext for lots of political prosecutions in the future that you go after a defeated opponent. Um, maybe, maybe not. Well, I mean, you sure there's that danger, but the worst abuse of a law shouldn't uh, mean you get a, get rid of the law. So um, the principle at at the heart of it, which you which you know, you're just teeing this up for the uh, um, purpose of um, intellectual exploration. You know, the purpose, of course, is that no one should be above the law, and nobody, particularly a president, should be above the law. Um, and uh, and that you know, I mean, it would be extraordinary if the Supreme Court. We should we should talk about that. It would be super bonkers if the if the Supreme Court found in Trump's favor, even though one of the members, Justice Thomas, is married to somebody who believes and acted affirmatively to overthrow a free and fair election um, and discussed it with him based on on the text that she sent to Mark Meadows. Hmm. Perhaps Justice Thomas might consider recusing himself from said case. We will see. Seems highly unlikely. Kate Cox is a 31-year-old mother of two living in Texas. She's about 20 weeks pregnant with a fetus that has trisomy 18, a condition that is generally fatal at birth or in the very early stages of life. I mean, almost entirely so she sought an abortion in Texas to protect her health and her life. And the Texas Supreme Court, backed by the attorney general, denied her that abortion after a lower court judge had told her to go ahead and get it. Um, she's now left Texas to get the abortion that she needs to protect her life and health. It's a really fascinating and terrible, sad case about somebody who wants, wanted a baby and has a baby who 
this will not be a baby. This is a child that will not survive. Um, and she's at enormous risk herself. So why, Emily, did Cox not qualify for an abortion under the new Texas abortion law, which is supposed to protect her from death and s- severe health risks? Yeah, this is a really sad case, and I recommend that people who are interested in it listen to the interview on The Daily um, for The New York Times that Kate Cox did, because she speaks very well for herself. So the issue here is that Texas has a very, very um, strict abortion ban, and it allows doctors to perform abortions only when uh, they decide, based on their medical judgment, that a patient is either at risk of death or faces a serious risk of substantial impairment of a major bodily function. And so the the argument that Cox's lawyers tried to make here was that because she's had four emergency room visits, she had two previous C-sections, um, she has elevated vital signs, for all of those reasons that there was a substantial risk to her health right now and also to her future fertility. And, you know, that seemed like certainly the statute could be read to incorporate fertility. And when you kind of think about the tragedy of this woman who has two children, this was very much a wanted pregnancy. She wants to have more children. The idea that she would be denied a medical procedure she needs to protect her future fertility seems pretty horrifying. But the Texas Supreme Court said no. They said that this was not an exception that the statute encompasses. No, they didn't say that. That's what's so crazy about it. They didn't say. Okay, they, they said, didn't say. They said it, they, it's much more insidious, which is they said yes, this is a medical decision. The doctors, doctors can decide. Doctors have to decide. And what that means is it puts doctor and and meanwhile, Ken Paxton, the attorney general of, of Texas, has put all the doctors and hospitals on notice that if you conduct an abortion under circumstances which we think are suspicious we're gonna you have not avoided any legal risk if you just because you think something doesn't mean you've protected yourself and the problem is that there's this incredible asymmetrical risk for doctors that if they go ahead and carry out an abortion under circumstances that they believe are warranted they are still exposed to the enormous risk of prosecution or civil tort um under Texas law. And it's 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 a risk that no doctor could afford to take to loss of your career or your profession. You're making a judgment that you believe is warranted. But because the law is 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 hanging over you with this unpredictability and ambiguity, you just can't do it. Is what you're talking about, David, the fact that, in other words, a doctor can't just say in my good faith judgment that the standard in this case is the standard of reasonable medical judgment, which means you can have other medical professionals weigh in on your judgment and or the state so that it's a much broader standard that you could run afoul of as opposed to just saying my good faith judgment and then you go through the lines of reasoning that led you to that conclusion. Is that where this lies, Emily, in this particular case, that difference in standard? I mean, I think what the court is doing by trying to throw it back onto the doctors is to just like pretend that the statute is perfectly clear and that what they say is not going to then be at risk of a future prosecution in the face of Ken Paxton like beating the drum for the future prosecution, right? Like, of course, those words I read to you about substantial impairment of a major bodily function need to be interpreted. That's like a standard thing courts do. 
right? They decide in a specific case, how does that law apply? And so there's this kind of pretend that the Texas Supreme Court is doing here, like, oh, don't ask us. It's not our job to figure this out. And that's ridiculous. Like the doctor has made her reasonable medical judgment. She's just trying to make sure she doesn't lose her license and go to prison based on that judgment. And be civilly sued for thousands of dollars. Yes. I think we've come back to this, and this was true in those, the education cases around what books kids, par- teachers are allowed to teach, um, that creating ambiguity in a profession where there's an asymmetrical risk to the person doing it, where if they do, if they proceed with something they believe to be good pedagogy or good medicine, um, it's not enough because there is this enormous risk that they will be prosecuted or that they will lose their license and they will be un- they will lose their ability to do all the work that they want to do um because it's uncertain because the rules are uncertain the law is uncertain about it and that what that does is it just it forces people to stop doing things i i i keep coming back to this idea in life that uncertainty like imposed uncertainty uncertainty that people are creating to make other people nervous or or feel bad uh, or or feel unsure is the worst. It's like a it's a it's a true sin in the world, and it it would be so much better. You know, it would be a better system. It would be really much better if the legal risk is all on the woman, if it's all on the pregnant person. You just say, if you're a pregnant person, you you can go ahead and do this if you think you have health and you know risk, and and but the doctor has no liability. The doctor the doctor. The doctor is not liable at all. You're liable if we come back and decide that you didn't actually face a risk. That would be a much fairer system than because because what we've done is we put this risk on these doctors and 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 they're the only ones who are able to do the procedure and it it just means that the procedure is completely frozen in Texas and it just seems wrong and crazy and I didn't explain that well but so it goes. So Emily, w- this this. Texas case. Kate Cox is going to get her abortion somewhere. I don't know where it is, but she will find a place to do it. And it turns out, of course, that we've heard that abortion hasn't really um, significantly declined in the U.S., even though there are these states which have, have massive restrictions. Have we seen any of the criminal cases that we thought we were going to see against doctors for providing care to patients who are visiting from out of state or people who are prescribing across state lines? Have any of those cases been brought such that they're now doctors in New York who are not able to fly through Texas on their way to Mexico? As far as I know, there have not been any criminal charges brought against doctors Some doctors who are prescribing from blue states into red states prescribing abortion pills are not going to places like Texas because they don't want to test that premise, right? Um, They have some legal protection in their own states, but if they leave, it's less clear. Uh, And I think one thing that's important about this story, so Kate Cox is not the only person by any means who's been facing the kind of choice um, and difficulty terminating a pregnancy that she faced. And, you know, these stories are important for showing what the full effect of ending Roe versus Wade was, right? I mean, this is part of the picture that people with wanted pregnancies, like fully adult people who thought really hard about their choices, who um, would do anything to have to carry a healthy baby to term, but that is not going to happen. Like they are being caught in the vice of these laws. And yes, you can travel and get an abortion. And Kate Cox luckily has the means to do that. But 
it is like a terrible position to be in um, when you just think about the health risks involved. And so there's a way in which I think part of what these cases does is just kind of show people exactly the full scope of the implications of these laws. I assume, John, this has some political benefit for Democrats, the persistence of these cases. I mean, I think it does. One of the things that, uh, as a political matter, we've been wondering about with abortion is how much after the Dobbs decision would it affect? Would it affect when it was specifically related to abortion? Would it affect, um, would it have power related to Democratic candidates? And we've seen pretty much it has power across all different kinds of ways that abortion um, gets sorted in the political context. And so I should think that this would, um, yeah, that this would continue to be the political issue. Um, and again, it seems to me that the narrative of this case is is highly personal and highly about um, the decisions made by a woman who has, um, you know, a compelling family story and who gets to make those decisions. Um, and I, so I think that that if passed is prologue, then it would um, be a benefit for Democrats. Let's go to cocktail chatter. John Dickerson, now that I have seen the whole cocktail set up at the Dickerson household, I can envision you and your beautiful bride sitting for cocktails and in a comfortable seated area. In fact, I saw you having cocktail. I had a cocktail chatter with you when you were home late when late at night. Um, but you were definitely having a cocktail. It looked like a delicious classic Dickerson martini, a I E cold gin. What are you going to be chattering about? I'm going to be chattering about uh, two things. Um, one is a Chris uh, or a holiday uh, holiday gift that we just realized that um, it was Anne's birthday, and she realized that these one line a day journals she'd been given. She was almost on her fifth year, which means it's done. But it's just you write one line a night, and we found over the years that as she reflects back on um, the previous years and the one line she wrote on that specific day, um, it has been really useful. It's been quite a conversation starter at the end of the day. So um, if you're looking for a gift, that's a great gift to somebody, give to somebody. So my real chatter, though, is comes from a column written by uh, James Barron um, in the Metro section of the New York Times. Um, it's by, about a guy named Stephen Hanshu, who um, has moved at least eight times since he was 19 years old. And each time he's taken with him three boxes that someone left in the first place in the, he lived, which is a studio in the East Village, East Village. And the, in the boxes are these um, tapes, the open real tapes, um, which he thought uh, were useless. They say Bob Dylan on them. Um, they're from November of 1961. Um, and he was always told... <laughs> what, what kind of person sees a thing that's labeled Bob Dylan 1961? It's a tape, and it's like, oh, that's probably well, useless. He was told, <laughs> he was told that, they, um, that there wasn't anything on them. Um, and uh, uh, so that they were... He didn't think they were of any value, but he also didn't throw them away. Um, and uh, anyway, so finally he found somebody who um, could play them um, for him. And it turns out that, um, they are, uh, I believe this is right. They are the only e existing tapes from Dylan's first album, the very first album, which, um, ended up being called Hammond's Folly for, um, the Columbia records executive who signed Dylan because they were, his first album was a bust in the United States, um, and was seen to have been a huge disaster for Columbia records. Um, of course, 
Dylan turned out not to be a disaster for Columbia Records, and the tapes, which are now um, up for auction, may go for uh, as much as more than a million dollars. So keep those things you find in the attic. You know, my favorite stories are are things people find in the attic that are really valuable. So whose property? I mean, obviously he owns that physically, but doesn't Dylan have some sort of or the or the or the label somehow own what's on them? It's a good question. I guess they would. This, this would be a question for Emily. Would they would own the music on it, right? From a copyright perspective, but does it mean yeah. that they own they physically own the? They don't physically own the tapes. Yeah, and right? you'd have to establish the chain of custody, right? I mean, what if they sold them or handed them away at the time, which is not, which is totally reasonable, um, because. You know, it, it was seen to have been a real loser of an album. Um, so, I mean, they presumably abandoned it as property, but I don't know that they they abandoning the tapes is, of course, not the same thing as abandoning the music that's on the tapes. Right. It does still seem like they would have copyright to the creative to the IP, right, to the intellectual property that the tapes constitute, like to the music, right, but not the tapes themselves the hand- i wonder if they could it could I think it, so but i wonder if the, if there's a right to enforce the ability to extract that ip like i own that those tapes but they have bob dylan's voice on them does bob dylan or whoever has the right the studio or whoever owns that music do they have the right to get it from me because and and to to take that work and and publicize it to the world or no as long as i hold the f- tapes physically they can't do anything with it Hmm. This was this sort of came up with this new Beatles song, right? Where they had these this t- this old track of John Lennon, and they'd had it for a while. But I mean, Yoko Ono gave either Paul McCartney or the studio the tape, so there wasn't like she wanted them to make this new music. But anyway, the when he was given the tapes, he was told they'd been bulk erase. But um, one of my favorite quotes from the um, uh, the piece is he said the Andrew said, I thought for most of the years I've had these tapes, I was being irrational to keep them. Every time I moved, my wife, my girlfriend, my daughter, someone would look at me and say, Why are you dragging these around for? And I would say, I don't know, but I can't make myself throw them away. I love the way you get the story of his life in that quote. <laughs> my wife, I worry my girlfriend, that that is my daughter, my grandkids. <laughs> yeah but now this is an excuse for hoarders everywhere to keep everything forever yeah totally emily what is your chatter we've been talking a lot about the supreme court the supreme court uh did another pretty momentous thing this week in saying it would hear this case about whether the fda had the power or did correctly um approved the abortion pill mifepristone This is a big case because the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals that um, covers Texas and other states said that the FDA um, blew it in important ways. And most importantly, that the FDA should not have approved mail order prescriptions of mifepristone. That if the Supreme Court adopted that reasoning, that would be a huge deal because it would change access in a dramatic way to mifepristone, not just in red states that have restricted abortion, but across the entire country, because that's where the FDA has jurisdiction. And there's also this underlying question here about the FDA's regulatory authority, um, because we have one national regulator for drugs. That's the way it works. And pharmaceutical companies depend on that. So this is an important case for abortion access and also for the federal government's power to do things. And it will be uh, argued they didn't pick a date yet, but probably sometime this spring and presumably decided by the end of the term over the summer. 
I was going to chatter about the amazing story, which I think I texted to you guys, um, who would give this guy millions to build his own utopia, a piece about the worst person I've ever read about, a guy named Dryden Brown, who has extracted $20 million from various crypto bros to build a, a nasty sounding utopia. Um, and I, I was going to chatter about that, but then I was talking to my girlfriend about it and she's like, why do you always chatter about New York Times stories? So I'm not going to chatter about that. Um, <laughs> and so because see, there wasn't a New Yorker story available that the, week, uh, but instead I'm going to chatter about what I'm really obsessed about, which is that the it, DC is about to have a massive shift, uh, in its downtown, which is that the, the person who owns the hockey team and the basketball team in Washington, a guy named Ted Leonsis, um, has, has decided he's going to move the hockey and basketball teams out of downtown into Alexandria into Virginia, a little bit outside of the city and build a new arena down there. And the revival of DC's downtown is heavily dependent on the, the return of the capitals and the wizards to downtown. They had been in the suburbs when John and I were growing up, but they came back downtown in the early nineties, late eighties, I think. And it was a huge difference that this, this entire area around gallery place in Chinatown went from being troubled and, not in good shape to being an incredibly economically vibrant. It was the anchor of, of a new downtown in DC and 220 nights of events downtown of uh, tens of thousands of people there all the time, just a bustle of activity, restaurants, galleries, uh, cultural life. And now it's going to be pulled out of the city basically because the, uh, mayor and the city council couldn't reach an agreement with Leonsis and weren't, kind of didn't suck up to him enough. They should have sucked up to him more. They should have done a lot more to try to get this guy to stay because the presence of those events and that activity is enormously beneficial to the city. And now we're not going to have it. And it's not like, a fo- I mean, people talk about football, st- football stadiums are only host events 10 times a year. This is something which is busy all the time. And it's going to be a really huge blow for the city. And and it does turn and it turns out actually that this one of the th- reasons why this is happening is a perception of crime. Leonsis apparently just didn't like the way it felt. It was starting to feel unsafe down in Gallery Place. That there was a lot of drug activity. There had been a lot of sort of property crime, uh, shoplifting. People cars were getting broken into when they were coming to the games. And now they're he's going to take his his billions of dollars and move to a place where he has more control, where he can have. Uh, his own private police force effectively and where it will be safer for the fans who come to the game um, in Alexandria. And that sucks for the city. Um, I also quickly want to ask anyone who is in Nashville or Austin or wants to be in Nashville or Austin and is interested in coming to work with us at CityCast uh, to take a look at our citycast.fm slash jobs page because we're hiring executive producers in Austin and Nashville to launch podcasts and newsletters in those cities. And we are growing fast. CityCast is doing something wonderful in the cities where we are. So if you're somebody who could lead a team in in Austin or Nashville, please reach out to us at citycast.fm slash jobs. Listeners, you chatter. You've got chatters. Uh, and there's so many good ones this week. You've sent them to us, emailed them to us at gabfestislate.com. And we are hearing from Margaret, who's in Jersey City, New Jersey. 
Hello, GabFest listeners. This is Margaret calling from Jersey City, New Jersey. My cocktail chatter is about a Facebook group called Chair Watch. The group is dedicated to keeping an eye on a precariously perched chair on the edge of the top of a dilapidated roofless house on Route 47 in Dennisville, New Jersey, which happens to be across the street from my parents' house. This stretch of Route 47 is prone to standstill traffic in the summer, and the group's membership ballooned with people who have noticed the chair while stuck in traffic on their way down the shore. Local media picked up on the story, and then Canadian Public Radio ran a story on the group and the chair to which it is dedicated. Membership in the Facebook group now exceeds 11,000. As of today, the chair still stands, although there are rumors that the house is set to be demolished. People are inspired by the chair's stubborn defiance of the law of gravity and persistence through rain, wind, snow, heat, and cold. I will continue to keep an eye on the chair through the Facebook group and via updates from my parents. That's our show for today. The Gap Fest is produced by Shana Roth. Our researcher is Julie Hugan. Our theme music is by the Baby Giants. Ben Richmond is Senior Director for Podcast Operations. Alicia Montgomery is the VP of Audio for Slate. Please email us your listener chatter at gapfestatslate.com. Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson and David Plotz. We will talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? So one of my favorite segments we've ever done on the Gap Fest, and I think I speak for you guys too, was when we had Marin Kogan of Vox to, on to talk about her article about pedestrian deaths in the U.S. and about the concept of the strode, that the U.S. had become incredibly dangerous for pedestrians. And one reason was the rise of these too fast, broad commercial streets that people were walking down and having to cross because they lived near them and were getting hit at tremendous rates. Really super interesting. I strongly recommend you go look at Marin's piece and listen to our back segment about this. But uh, Emily's beloved New York Times has an amazing story this week about pedestrian deaths and about the rise in pedestrian deaths, which has been much noted by Marin, among others, and pointing out two fascinating facts about it. One, it is this rise in pedestrian deaths is heavily concentrated in the U.S. If you look at if you look at us in comparable countries, comparable countries in Europe, Australia have not seen the same rise. Number one, and number two, it is overwhelmingly caused by a rise in deaths at night uh, that people are getting killed walking at night, and they the Times goes into some of the explanations for it, and I was utterly transfixed by this, John Dickerson. Uh, were you as transfixed by this as I was? And let's talk about what the reasons are. Yes. Oh, well, so I was I was equally transfixed. And then I started to wonder about why we love these kinds of stories, because um, I think it goes right to the heart of why we love what we do, which is that it was it was incredibly rich in its efforts to try to pull apart a complicated and tangled um, set of inputs. And then along the way, it had these really nourishing discoveries. One of the things I like the most was the pedestrian deaths by time of day across all 12 months. And so if you imagine an EKG with a with a line that goes from left to right, kind of bouncing along, and then jacks up um, around about five o'clock, 
as you go from January, it's at five o'clock. And then in February, it's at like 545. And then in March, it's six and so forth and so on. As you get and what it shows you when all of these lines are stacked on top of each other is it shows you that basically this increase in deaths comes when the sun goes down. So it's just another way of um, kind of looking at a phenomenon and affirming what is it the heart still a mystery about why it happens in the U.S. and we can talk about some of the the theories about why it happens, but um, it's just it's so pleasing when there is a phenomenon which obviously at the heart of it this is a this is an incredibly sad and and you know sorrowful phenomenon, but it's just so interesting to see the way different ways in which it was taken apart and the connection between not only daylight but then also the introduction of the iPhone in two thousand and seven. And how that basically is one of the strong arguments for why this might possibly be happening. Um, the other one I loved was, yeah, sure, but there are iPhones in Europe. But in Europe, there are more manual transmissions. And therefore, you are less apt to fuddle around with your phone um, in the dark than you would when you're driving an automatic. Um, I just thought it was such a thoughtful piece of um, craft. So that's one of the reasons I was interested in it as well. Yeah, it's by Emily Badger, Ben Blatt, and Josh Katz. And it does have this kind of detective story element. And it also, I mean, it's scary, but it suggests solutions. I mean, I finished this thinking that a really plausible explanation for this rise in pedestrian deaths at night is that people are more distracted when they're driving because they're more on their phones. It just seemed like Americans, I mean, there was a stat about how Americans are fiddling more with their phones. And, you know, there is a way in which, especially because often, or for some of us, like if your map is on your phone, then you're already like thinking about your phone in the car and it's immediately available. And maybe that's also how you control whatever you're listening to. Um, And there is a difference. um, That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, Go to slate.com slash GabFestPlus to become a member today.